This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. A bill in the Florida House of Representatives that would restrict abortions after 15 weeks passed its first committee hearing with 12 votes to 6 along party lines. The bill does include an exception such as when a doctor says the fetus has a fatal abnormality but it does not allow exceptions for rape or incest. Current Florida law bans abortion after 24 weeks of pregnancy. The bill has companion legislation in the Florida Senate. Senator Kelly Stargell, a Republican from Lakeland, released a statement saying that, quote, women and children deserve better than abortion. She also talked about her own personal experience as a, quote, scared teenage mother who understands the turmoil of an unplanned pregnancy. Representative Erin Grohl, a Republican from Vero Beach, said the bill is a fight for life. We killed over 25% of Florida's children in 2020, and that's an atrocity. What about the basic human rights and freedoms of those children? What about the privilege that has been stripped away from those children? That child will be born a human being like you and I with all of the rights and privileges that we have to live in this country. Meanwhile, Representative Anna Escamani, a Democrat from Orlando, spoke out in opposition to the bill. She said it would strip away freedom from half the state's population. I have a deep sense of irony in my blood as I hear this debate, especially since it was just last in November when the word freedom was said so many times on the House floor during the COVID-19 special session. Yet here we are about to strip away freedom from more than half of Florida's population. Let us be clear, this is not a moderate bill. There is no such thing as a reasonable abortion ban. Representative Escamani joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So you talked in the committee hearing about the bill stripping away freedoms for women in Florida. In your view, how will House Bill 5 affect women in Florida if it passes? House Bill 5 is an extreme piece of policy that bans abortion after 15 weeks and, as you noted, has very limited exceptions. The reality is that for folks who need an abortion beyond 15 weeks, these are folks who are often navigating some very difficult circumstances as people who are poor, who are unable to access an abortion earlier in their pregnancy or do not realize they were pregnant. And the point that I made in committee as well is that this actually doesn't stop abortion. It basically just pushes people to have to find other means to navigate their pregnancy. And if this were to become law and Roe v. Wade were to be overturned, The closest option for those seeking to end a pregnancy after 15 weeks would be North Carolina. And that's assuming North Carolina doesn't also pursue an abortion ban. So tell me about the discussion that passed in in that House committee. I mean, what was the mood in that room like? It seemed like you were fairly passionate about things, but what's your sense of how lawmakers feel about the bill in general? Well, the point that we always want to stress to folks is that no matter your perspective on abortion, decisions about someone's pregnancy are super private and super personal. And oftentimes when folks are making that decision, they're doing so with their family, with their medical provider, and they're preying on it. They're thinking about how does this intersect with my beliefs? They're not going to politicians for advice. And I, I think what really uh, gives me the most frustration is that we're in this body that continuously talks about freedom. You know, we had a special session over COVID-19 mandates. And now here we are with a bill that is mandating government interference within someone's personal decision about their pregnancy. And there are so many other issues we could be championing to truly empower women and girls. You know, I have filed legislation to eliminate Florida's diaper tax. We also have legislation to put into our schools menstruation items. Uh, We have policies uh, to try to improve the adoption and foster care system. So there are these these commonalities we can find, especially on areas of prevention. I have filed legislation for Florida to have comprehensive age-appropriate sex ed 
And of course, our efforts also increase access to contraception. And yet the bill that is prioritized, the bill that moves the fastest is an abortion ban. And of course, we're doing this at a time where Texas has already passed a six-week abortion ban and Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban was just heard by the Supreme Court of the United States. And when I asked the bill sponsor why 15 weeks, her answer was because Mississippi did it. So this is not about what's in the best interest of, of a person or, or even based on medical science. This is purely about trying to ban abortion across the country, starting with 15 weeks in Florida. But I have no doubt they're going to continue going down this path into next session. So this is really tied in, you're saying, to what's happening at the, the national level, particularly with the Supreme Court of the United States? Wholeheartedly. You know, what, what listeners need to remember is that Florida actually has a really strong right to privacy enumerated in our state constitution, which has actually stopped anti-abortion restrictions from being implemented. The best example was in 2015, Florida lawmakers passed 24-hour mandatory delay, which is a law that requires you to wait 24 hours or more before accessing an abortion after you meet with your medical provider. And this is purely politically motivated. There's no medical guidance to delay care. It's purely based upon a notion of punishing folks who are in this place and also creating transportation barriers and time off work barriers and childcare barriers to express bodily autonomy. That law, though it is still in statute today, has not been fully enforced because of the litigation under this right to privacy clause. What Republican lawmakers are betting on is that the Supreme Court of the United States is going to rule against the protection established by Roe v. Wade, opening up a path for Florida state court to do the same. So that's what we're up against right now. And and of course, um, I think there's also this uh, litmus test for conservatism, where if you don't ban abortion, you're not you're not conservative enough. That I think Republicans, including Governor DeSantis, are facing as he tries to set himself up to run for president of the United States. So I, I do think that that Republican lawmakers are competing on this race to the bottom to ban abortion. That in the day might look good, you know, in a, in a Republican primary, but actually looks really bad to general voters, and of course has damaging effects for the people of Florida who are going to find themselves unable to to make this personal decision. I just wanted to come back to the notion of freedom and some of the comments you made in the discussion last week. I mean, one thing I've noted is that the folks who are uh, pushing back against, you know, mask mandates and those kinds of ordinance seem to have been using the language that has been used by uh, people who are in favour of freedom of choice when it comes to abortion, like my body, my choice, and, and that is language which was basically used um, to push back against mask mandates. Um, what do you make of that kind of turning around of, of that sort of phraseology and how effective is it then? Well, it's purely an ideology of convenience. You know, those who co-opted the terminology, my body, my choice, her body, her choice, uh, to defend themselves in the face of, you know, public safety measures um, seem completely silent when it comes to abortion access. And indeed, those same Republican lawmakers who were carrying that banner all through the summer uh, uh, we're not only silent in speaking, uh, you know, even for this bill to some degree, but they voted for it without question. So we are up against uh, uh, hypocrisy at its worst. And it's so important for those of us who care about this issue to lead with our values. You know, abortion access is not a Republican versus Democrat issue when you go outside the legislature. In fact, even in Manatee County, a part of the state that is very conservative, there was an effort at the municipal level to ban abortion. 
and one of the county commissioners who voted no to find herself as a pro-choice Republican woman. One in four American women have had an abortion in this country, and nobody cares what their political affiliation is when you're trying to make this decision. That is really important to stress because Floridians overwhelmingly have demonstrated, whether it's through statewide ballot amendments that have tried to water down the right to privacy or even in just recent polling, have said that they want the, the standard under Roe v. Wade to maintain the same and they don't think this should be a political issue. They think this should be a personal, private issue between a person, their family, their doctor, and their faith. It is politicians who want to make this a campaign slogan for everyday people, they just want to navigate this decision like, like it is any other dynamic around your personal health and well-being and the decision about your family. Right, but it's politicians have been voted in and seemingly they've found something that resonates with at least some of their, their, their constituents. I wanted to ask too, I mean, the bill did seem like it, it went through the, the first hearing along party lines, didn't seem like there was a lot of opposition or, or at least folks kind of crossing those lines to to vote with Democrats. So, And it has support from the governor, as you noted. So what do you think the trajectory looks like from here on out? I mean, I, I think this bill is going to be fast tracked. You know, I think Republican lawmakers, um, they want to they want to pass an abortion ban for their primary voters, but they want to do so in a way where there's distance between when the governor signs it and when it's campaign season. At the end of the day, this is an issue that that wakes up women from across the state, from every political affiliation, but including those that don't typically vote. And we saw this uproar in Texas after Senate Bill 8 of eight political people stepping up and saying, I I am so offended by this and I want to do something about it. And I think the reason why Republican lawmakers, in addition to this right to privacy clause are doing 15 weeks instead of something like Texas, even though a Texas version was already filed in the legislature, is because they don't want to wake the beast. They don't want this to be an issue that carries into the campaign trail. So I have no doubt that Governor DeSantis, who really hasn't signed the most extreme abortion bans into law yet, you know, he has only signed one anti-abortion bill um, into law in his political uh, uh, career as governor. So he's looking for something to also put into into uh, his uh, track record but he wants to do so in a way that by november of 2022 the hope is that democrats don't remember and and republicans keep referring to this bill as being reasonable and this is a talking point that they keep trying to basically use to to mislead the public and trying to paint this abortion ban as not being a big deal and we're here to remind folks that any new restriction on abortion is extreme and for those who have means to leave the state, it'll be, it'll be a barrier, but they will still have the ability to express bodily autonomy. The folks I am most concerned about are those who don't have resources to leave the state. It's going to be poor people, undocumented people, people with disabilities who are much more likely to experience sexual assault compared to others. It's going to be folks that really have nowhere else to turn. And it's Florida lawmakers who vote for this bill that are turning their backs on these Floridians, which unfortunately is all too common because this is a body that prioritizes wealthy individuals and corporations over working class and poor Floridians. And we're here to make sure those folks are not forgotten and that they have the same ability to express bodily autonomy as anyone else. Are you then thinking beyond session? You know, it sounds like the bill it could well be signed into law by the governor. So are you thinking like, what are the next steps, whether it's something you can do as a lawmaker or 
something that may need to be done to help folks who, who would be seeking that kind of medical care and, and wouldn't be able to find it in Florida? Yeah, absolutely. You know, most folks probably know that before I ran for office, I worked at Planned Parenthood of Southwest and Central Florida. And before that, I was a Planned Parenthood patient. So these issues are really personal to me, not just as a woman, but as someone who has really committed her life to equity, uh, prioritizing the needs of women and girls. And so we are thinking beyond session. I mean, the reality, as you, as you already outlined, is that we're up against uh, a partisan breakdown that is the result of uh, voter suppression and gerrymandering that has created a legislative body that does not reflect the everyday needs of majority of Floridians. And this is a body that wants to pass a 15-week abortion ban and right now is on track to do so. And so we have to think beyond this. Now, you know, I suspect there will be some sort of litigation strategy. I'm not privy to that. But what I do know is we can't leave patients without access to care. So we already see efforts to mobilize abortion funds uh, so that there is going to be the the opportunity for uh, funding resources for those patients who need to leave the state of Florida. And in conversations with my colleagues in other states that are much more supportive of reproductive health, you already see efforts to prepare for more patients. And we saw that in the case of Texas, where there was uh, a flow of Texans leaving the state to access a procedure. Even Mexico, which recently legalized abortion, activists in Mexico are stepping up to provide support to Texas women. Like that's how how dire the situation is, where we have to look towards our sister states, and even sometimes sister countries to be a resource for people. Because here in the United States of America, uh, we no longer have a strong track record in bodily autonomy for every person. Do you think... Just to, to wrap things up here, Representative, do you think that there is some middle ground? Like, is there any likelihood that, at least in the House, um, lawmakers who are in support of this bill may come some way towards where you are coming from? Or, like, is is there some compromise to be had here? Yeah, I mean, it's a fair question. The reality is that abortion is already heavily restricted and regulated in states across this country, including Florida. You know, right now in Florida, we have the viability ban. We have a required uh, uh, pamphlet provided to patients. We have ultrasounds uh, requirements. And of course, 24-hour mandatory delay, which is still being litigated, but is still in law. And so I would argue that a compromise is to leave people alone. Stop making this issue political. You don't see uh, uh, movement in the offense around this issue. And there is no reason for Republicans to be continuously pushing to ban no one's asking for this policy. And so I think the compromise is to lay your hand off our bodies and, and let us express our personal decisions, much like anyone else is able to do in other medical conditions and issues. And let's focus on areas of prevention. You know, if you truly want to reduce the rate of abortion and that is your goal, there are some smart, thoughtful, evidence-based ways to do that that don't shame and judge individuals for making this decision. State Representative Arna Eskamani, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Still to come, Omicron cases are declining in Florida and elsewhere in the United States. So what does that mean for the pandemic? Dr Ali Mokdad with the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation says herd immunity through vaccination or infection and the development of new vaccines and treatments puts us in a better position now to respond to COVID-19. We'll have more on that after the break. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. The Omicron wave of COVID-19 appears to have peaked in Florida. Reported cases surged above the Delta variant last summer, but Omicron appears less severe than previous mutations of the virus. Meanwhile, a new sub-variant of Omicron has now been detected. 
For more on the Omicron wave and what it means for the pandemic, I spoke with epidemiologist Dr Ali Mokhtar. He's a professor of health metrics sciences at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation and chief strategy officer for population health at the University of Washington. Dr Mokhtar, thanks again for joining me. My pleasure. Well, first of all, let's just talk about the cases themselves. They're tapering off pretty sharply in Florida and elsewhere around the United States as well. In Florida, they peaked at more than 60,000 new cases a day earlier in January. So is it fair to say this is the end of the Omicron surge? Yes, it's fair to say it's the end of the Omicron surge. And it's also fair to say it's the end of COVID-19 pandemic and the beginning of the endemic phase, simply because many people are infected uh, or vaccinated. And we have a high percentage of people who have immunity for this virus from now on. That's interesting. So is this the end of the pandemic that you were expecting or that people might be expecting? And what does that mean? Well, it's the end of the pandemic. What we were expecting is a high immunity. Remember, we were saying we need herd immunity. And the fact you can get immunity through an infection or through vaccines, Omicron has leveled the playing field. People who are not vaccinated, unfortunately, got infected. And right now we have a lot of people who know this virus, have dealt with this virus one way or another, and we are in a much better position. What about the difference between um, herd immunity through infection and immunity through vaccination, because there's quite a bit of debate about that and people who are less keen on the idea of particularly vaccine mandates are saying that it's better to just get infected. So what what is the data telling you about the two forms of um, immunity that you might get from, from COVID-19? It's better to get vaccinated, not infected, for sure. Because once you are vaccinated, you're not risking going to a hospital or dying from this virus. That's one. Two, you're not risking long-term COVID-19. We don't know yet what COVID will cause to the human system or your body. And we know from many data sources that we have long-term COVID effect for many people. So we need to be very careful. But to answer your question in a scientific way, if you are infected, yes, you have an immunity and it will wane like the vaccine immunity, it will wane. So definitely you need still to get a vaccine in order to stay up to date in terms of your immunity. And there's also debate, I mean, just on that note about Uh, booster shots. Again, there's politics kind of tangled up in all of this, so it's difficult to maybe take a purely scientific approach to it. But what are we learning more about in terms of the effectiveness of booster shots, when you should get them, you know, when you can safely say somebody is fully immunized or vaccinated against COVID-19? So the data is very strong, showing that a three doses uh, provide protection against hospitalization and mortality from Omicron and Delta, of course. And therefore, we all need a third shot. Uh, It's like any vaccine we use. For measles, for example, we give our kids two shots. I mean, there are vaccines that are two, three shots. Uh, COVID-19 clearly is a three shots vaccine. So we all need it. The question is when you get your third shot after your second shot, the data also showing a waning immunity after five to six months. But many countries, because of the rapid surge of Omicron in order to protect their hospitals, changed the recommendation to three months. Uh, I personally feel it's a smart and wise decision. And I personally feel that the United States needs to change the definition of fully vaccinated to three doses rather than two doses. And you mentioned, you know, measles, but there are some diseases where a a vaccination could be a couple of cycles in infancy or childhood, and then that's it, right? Whereas something like this, it seems like we may be looking at 
a more regular regimen of, of doses like what you would have for influenza? I mean, they're childhood vaccines that you give them and it's over. But remember, for example, polio, we still give vaccines. We still give uh, measles vaccine for older people if they're going to certain places outside the United States. So yes, uh, we need to remain vigilant for uh, routine childhood immunization. But as far as for COVID-19, you need to look at it like a flu uh, infection, that every year you may need a vaccine for it. That vaccine will be modified every year in order to deal with the variant that's circulating at that time. We do exactly the same for flu. People don't remember that. But flu vaccines are different every year because they are modified. But they don't go through clinical trials. Right now, as you know, uh, there is a modified vaccine that is going through clinical trial to target Omicron, but it needs a clinical trial. So I'm hoping at one point of time, we can modify this COVID-19 vaccine and we'll give it seasonally like we give the flu shot and we don't need more than one dose a year. There's also an awful lot of debate about the type of vaccine, right? The mRNA vaccine, which is something quite new. So um, is this sort of new territory as well as sort of figuring out how these vaccines behave in in the global population? You're right. This is the first time we use mRNA for a vaccine, but mRNA technology has been here for a long time. So when I looked, uh, did a literature search, some of these uh, articles about mRNA were before I was even born. And you people cannot see me. I have white hair. I'm an older person. The technology was in the 90s developed. So this is not something new. The vaccine is new. What it means for mRNA it's opening a lot of doors for us. It will improve our ability to provide vaccines, especially the flu vaccine, because we can do it faster. And it will also impact non-communicable diseases, such as some cancers. So that's a very promising uh, technology. I tell my daughter that her kids will not die from certain conditions because they are lucky to have a mRNA, whereas my generation, people you know older than me, suffer these diseases from these diseases. So is that kind of an I guess an unexpected byproduct of of the research that's gone on and sort of been turbocharged over the last couple of years because of the pandemic yeah I look at it like a computer I mean when I went to college we didn't have our own laptops I mean I remember in my master's we had a computer in the office so technology changes and we need to remind ourselves that in medicine we've had so many changes in technology stuff that we do right now we never did before why stop at a vaccine and why question a new technology for vaccines that's what's really making us pause in this business and say what's happening here it's mainly anti-vax and they're finding any reason to attack vaccination and they're coming and saying well mRNA is a new vaccine you guys should be very careful it's going to impact you it's uh, remember uh, my generation uh, people said by 2000 everything will go crazy and then we're afraid nothing happened right so we need to remind ourselves that science is not still it's a moving target and when science stops improving we are in deep trouble let's just go back to uh, how omicron behaved and and the impact on florida for example i mean hospitals appear to have fared a lot better than they did during the delta variant surge even though cases were were really high the numbers were really high and the mortality rate too doesn't appear as high so what does that tell you about the omicron variant of covid-19 so let me tell you about omicron uh, 80 to 90% of the infections from omicron are asymptomatic so many people are infected and we don't see them that's one 
50% less chances to be admitted to a hospital once you are infected. And also once you are in a hospital, 90% chances, less chances to be admitted to ICU or intubation. So in general, it's about 99% less severe than what we have seen before. It's less severe than a bad flu season to 17 to 18. But the fact it's infecting a lot of people, infecting 50% of the population in three months, it has overwhelmed our hospitals. But mortality does not increase simply because it's less severe. And it's passed right now in many states, it has peaked and it's coming down. But we need to remember a peak, meaning 50% of the infections have occurred. On the decline, there's still 50% infections that are to be diagnosed and they will come to the hospital. So we have two, three weeks ahead of us that are difficult, but after that, we should be in a very good position, simply because many of us would have immunity through infections or vaccines. We have better vaccination that we are preparing, vaccines that we are preparing right now to deal with Omicron and its wave. We have better medication with these antiviral uh, uh, medications that will save lives and will prevent hospitalization. And the fourth one, which is the most important, even if COVID-19 throws at us a new variant that's an escape variant and more severe than uh, Omicron, we know to put our masks on and go to social distancing. So we are in a much better position from now on with this virus. And I strongly feel that we the pandemic has ended and endemic had started, but still I will not let down my guards until we reach a low level of infections in our communities. If you're just joining me, my guest is epidemiologist Dr. Ali Mokhtad, Professor of Health Metric Sciences at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Let me ask you then about variants, and I wonder if you go into a little more detail about how viruses mutate and what each variant means. I mean, should we be reassured that COVID-19 in the Omicron variant doesn't appear to be making people as sick when they get it? Because you mentioned the possibility that there could be another variant coming down the pike that may be worse than, than Omicron. And what does that actually mean? Exactly. So if you look at the virus itself, its shape, people, uh, virologists who we are working with will tell you this virus still has a lot of room to mutate. Viruses that only mean to stay alive is to mutate. And the way they mutate is either to be more infectious so they can spread faster in order to survive, or they can become more severe and hard for you to kill them once they are inside the human body. But also humans are not staying still. We also are improving our capacity to deal with this virus through our immune response, vaccines, or infections. Yes, Omicron uh, may not be the last variant uh, that we will see from this virus, but Omicron will be the last phase of the pandemic from this virus simply because we have the immunity right now and we, have, we are better equipped to deal with this virus. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Delta as well. I mean, are those earlier iterations of COVID-19 still out there in the population? So Delta, is, we still have in many states uh, Delta infections, uh, especially mortality from Delta, because people who are infected by Delta are staying sometimes in an ICU for two, three weeks and a month sometimes. And you see some of the deaths that's happening right now in the United States is not the Omicron is Delta, but we're shifting to Omicron, of course, uh, because Omicron is taking over Delta and spreading so fast. Omicron right now is almost 99% of what's circulating in the United States. Mm -hmm. But is there a risk that people might say, well, Omicron's not as bad, I don't need to worry about it? Because there there are still, it's not just Delta, I mean, there's potentially the, the even earlier iterations than that somewhere out in the population, right? 
Oh, that, that is a big risk. People will look at Omicron right now when Omicron is the only one circulating. Remember, we're still at the tail end of Delta. And people will say, why do I need the vaccine? Why do I need to wear a mask if it is less severe than a flu? Yes, this is a big risk. You know, many people still know that flu is not a major killer, but they take the vaccine for flu. And I hope everybody will do the same for COVID. And keep in mind, we don't know the long-term effect of a COVID infection. Right. And and there has been some research on the impact of COVID-19 on patients long after they contracted the disease, so-called long haulers. Are you seeing some indications that this, this variant, Omicron, may also lead to people struggling with symptoms long after infection? It's too early to tell because Omicron is now spreading. So we need some time to be able to find out. But we need to remind everybody that if you have an asymptomatic infection or a mild infection, there is less chance of you having long-term COVID. And also, if you are vaccinated, there is no long-term COVID. People who are having a long-term COVID are people who are having severe infections. Mostly, unfortunately, they are not vaccinated. Mm-hmm. What about treatments too? Because there are now new treatments or more widely available treatments, antibody uh, therapies such as Regeneron, for example. Do you, do you look at how those kind of factor into how a disease like COVID-19 mutates and spreads? No, antiviral are are very good and they will save a lot of lives. But remember, we don't have enough production and we don't have enough to go around to save everybody right now. So we need to be very careful until we have plenty of them. This reminds me of the Tamiflu. I hate to use a brand name on your show. But when Tamiflu came, it was really a game changer for flu infection. And we have two of those antiviral right now uh, that we we have available at our dispense. But we also need to remind everybody that getting vaccinated is the best approach and don't wait delay your vaccine and count on on the antiviral you need to take it as soon as possible you need to be tested positive it has to be prescribed to you just on the data too right at the start of the pandemic there was or there appeared to be plenty of data on who was getting COVID-19 how it was spreading there appears to be less of that or it's less easy to find now in Florida for example what does that mean for epidemiologists and for the general public as we you know, figure out what's next for COVID-19 and the, and the tail end of this pandemic. You know, we need to remain vigilant. Very important for us to improve our surveillance system. We found out throughout this pandemic that we were not well prepared. We need better surveillance to know who's been infected, who's not. We need to do more genetic sequencing to know what's circulating in our community. And we need to know if especially who's vaccinated, who's not by race, by gender, by age, in order to know where we should put our efforts to increase vaccination coverage in order to prevent deaths and hospitalization. But we have learned the hard way that in the United States, we were behind when it came to data compared to Israel, for example, Qatar or the UK. Right now, honestly, most of the data, most of the interview today, you and I, most of the information I shared with you, we found we are getting it from other countries and not from the United States. Hmm. One thing I've noticed too, I don't know how common this was before, but sampling of um, sewer, taking sewer samples to kind of figure out how a disease is spreading. Is that something that's relatively new for municipalities to be doing to figure out what a disease is doing and who's got it? 
No, it's not new. By the way, we do the same for polio. In many places, that's how they detect polio, wild polio, and make sure, or even not wild, in order to make sure they have a problem and they go and vaccinate. So this technology has been there for a long time. But yes, it's opening a lot of doors right now for us to know what viruses are available. Again, it's like a pooling test for PCR, and Omicron has took that advantage out. So let, let me explain. Before, most people who are doing PCR could lump five test and then go and test it. And then if there is a positive, they go and do the individual. Omicron, because we have so much higher rate of percent positive that we it's not relevant anymore to save time because every time you do a pool, you find positive and you have to go and do the one by one. So that's exactly what's happening here with these tests. Uh, it tells you there is a problem in the community and you don't know where it is in the community in order to go and address it, unless you are testing the sewages for each building and for each house, etc. I'm just wondering, as we wrap this conversation up, Dr. Mokhtad, what is the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation going to be doing from here on out, given the fact that, as you say, we're at the tail end of the pandemic and into the endemic phase? Are you going to maintain the, the website and the tracking, or do you move on to something new, a different project? We're going to go back to our daily jobs. Remember, we do the Global Burden of Disease. We do Salud Mesoamerica Initiative. We have a lot of projects that, unfortunately, we diverted resources and our time in order to track the pandemic. Before COVID-19, we were doing future health scenarios where we do project diseases and risk factors to 2040, and we provide what if scenarios. So lung cancer, what it will be in 2040 in Florida. If smoking goes down by 5% right now, what will happen to the burden of disease from lung cancer and total burden of disease? So it's very important for all of us to go back to our normal. But I think IHME and others should also invest in preparedness and we should use that lessons learned during this pandemic to prepare for the next one. And we know many of them are coming, especially when it comes to climate change. Hmm. Did you expect this pandemic to last as long as it had, like two years? Yes, two years. Uh, this is the end. Of, this year would be the end of the pandemic, in my opinion, but not the end of COVID-19. It will be with us, but we don't need to track it. It will be like flu. And we track flu on a regular basis. We'll be tracking COVID at the same time, doing projections perhaps for both of them, but not in a pandemic mode. Well, Dr. Ali Mokhtar, Professor of Health Metric Sciences at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation and Chief Strategy Officer for Population Health at the University of Washington. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Still to come, Zora Neale Hurston is influencing a new generation of writers. We'll talk to author Ray Chesney about Hurston's legacy and her impact on Chesney's own writing. That's when we return. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Zora Neale Hurston's writing is influencing a new generation of writers. Author Ray Chesney has been studying and writing about Hurston's work since 2018. She'll talk about Hurston's life and work this week in a series hosted by the Eatonville branch of the Orange County Library Service. It's called Zora Neale Hurston, The Storyteller and Her Town. I talked with Chesney about Hurston's legacy and her impact on Chesney's own writing. Zora Neale Hurston's writing is influencing a new generation of writers. Author Ray Chesney has been studying and writing about Hurston's work since 2018. She'll talk about Hurston's life and work this week. In a series hosted by the Eatonville branch of the Orange County Library Service, Zora Neale Hurston, the storyteller and her town. Well, Ray Chesney, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Matthew. 
I want to point out too for our listeners, as we speak, you've just visited um, the the gravesite of Zora Neale Hurston and taken in some landmarks, uh, some significant historical landmarks that are, are relevant to her life and her, her work. Just explain where you are right now as we're talking and, and what you've just been looking at. Yeah, so I um, my work is very much based in my love for Zora, first and foremost. And so I always want to take the opportunity to pay homage to her in any type of way I can um, and let her know that I thank her for allowing me to do the work and sharing her legacy. So right now I'm in the car doing this interview. Um, and after it, I will go to her gravesite, which is very nicely maintained. It's a beautiful, beautiful um, place. Alice Walker actually found Zora's unmarked grave in the early 1970s with her friend Charlotte Hunt, and she put the headstone there. And if you visit, you will notice that it says Zora was born in 1901. And that's because Zora lied about her age for a great majority of her life. She was actually born in 1891. Oh, wow. So there are some little Easter eggs in the historical data there. Absolutely. And that's exactly how Zora would like it. <laughs> so you're kind of on a, a bit of a, a literary detective trip in some ways, as, as well as coming to Florida to, to talk about Zora and her writing. Yeah, so I was actually here for the first time, uh, visited Eatonville in 2018. And it was the first year that I had ever done a Zora Neale Hurston presentation. I had actually come to Orlando on a family vacation. And then I realized that Eatonville was very close by and I had to pop in and see what Eatonville was all about. Uh, my work is very much so living work. I was here at this exact site in July and I do very much love to go to the places relevant and significant to Zora's work um, to even see if I can feel her energy. I am an author and writer storyteller myself, so I like all of that type of stuff. Um, and I like to travel around and see what I can find and what's still there. Uh, Fort Pierce and Eatonville both have kiosks and trails that you can take with landmarks and notations about the significant places of Zora. So talk to us, if you could, about how you came to appreciate Zora Neale Hurston, because you'd, you'd sort of been aware of her writing as you know when you were in school, but it took a while for that light bulb moment to happen, right? So just talk us through that. Yeah, so it's actually a very funny story because I was assigned to read Their Eyes Were Watching God in 10th or 11th grade in high school, and I didn't read it. My sister, contrary to me, had always been an avid reader, and her bookshelves were filled with Maya Angelou, Zora Neale Hurston, Toni Morrison. So I had her give me the Spark Notes version <laughs> of what happened in Their Eyes Were Watching God. Um, and fast forward to 2018. I was doing children's programming at the time and partnering with Michigan State University. And so the professor was like, oh, yeah, you're good with the kids. You're good with teaching my students at a college level. Would you do a Black history presentation on a literary figure that most inspired your career? And I didn't like to read as a child, so I honestly didn't have a person. But he threw out this beautiful word. He said, I will pay you an honorarium. <laughs> and so I said, absolutely, I'll find someone. And so I decided to do Langston Hughes because at the time I was a new mother, very busy. Mm -hmm. And as I was researching Langston Hughes, who is very famed for his simple everyday language, talking about the everyday working class Black man from the Harlem Renaissance, he um, is very famed for those things. But as I was researching him, 
Zora Neale Hurston kept coming up. And I'm like, oh, wait, that's the lady who wrote Their Eyes Are Watching God. Mm-hmm. And then I found out that she and Langston had been best friends during the Harlem Renaissance, that she achieved all of these things aside from Their Eyes Are Watching God, but she was nowhere near as famed or celebrated as Langston Hughes. And so probably the feminist in me said, you know what, I'm going to start presenting on Zora. That first year I had to do Langston and Zora, but since then it's been all me and Zora. <laughs> mm-hmm. So do you feel like awareness has grown of, of Zora Neale Hurston in the, the years that you've been kind of celebrating her work and, and, and you've come to, to know her work at a deeper level? Like, are, are you, and it sounds like you've got a, a mission too. You want other people to, to know about her and, and read about her and be inspired by her work too. But do you, do you feel like uh, some of that is, is taking hold with people? Are people getting more aware of who she was and what she did? I honestly don't think so. And that's good for me because it means that there's lots of work to do. The way in which I present Zora, because it's based in love and not a traditionally scholarly way, I think that more people are receptive to it and excited about it. Um, even I was lucky enough when I met the branch manager of the Eatonville Library. She's like, even me, I didn't know that much about Zora. And so the great deal of what I'm learning is from you. And I think that that's exciting because it means that there's opportunity. I think that when it comes to history, period, it's typically taught in a very uh, cold way. And so Mm -hmm. it's a bunch of dates, it's a bunch of names, but the personal connection is missing. And it's the same with Zora, it's the same with other historical figures. And so I think what has happened is that people who know about Zora they say the same thing that I said three and four years ago. Oh, yeah, the author of Their Eyes Are Watching God. But the conversations need to be had that she was a trained anthropologist, that she worked to preserve Black culture and how she did it, and then do it with her humor, do it with her sass, and do it with some fun. And so I am forecasting. I think that the opportunity is here, and it will happen for people to get excited and truly know her more fully. Do you think you would have had that appreciation you do now for Zora Neale Hurston had it been taught differently when you were in school? Yes. And actually, all all of my work, the work I do with children, the work I do uh, with Zora, the work I do when I write my own stories is all about that accessibility. It's always focused on engagement. So, for instance, I could have an idea of how I'm going to do my presentation, but if an audience member asks a question, or if I have an audience that's like, we specifically want to know about this, that is where I go. Because my job is to at least make them curious so that they start their own research. And that's how my mind works. Zora famously said, research is formalized curiosity. It is poking and prying with purpose. Mm-hmm. Now, talk to us about the series that you're presenting in Eatonville. What can people expect? So it's actually going to be a continuous conversation. Um, we have four different events, and it's going to be first an introduction to Zora. Um, So audiences that may not know a lot about her, it'll be kind of like a very top level. This is who Zora was. Here are some things she's accomplished. This is essentially why you should know about her. And then we're going to go into Zora's life in Eatonville, how it informed her work. Uh, Eatonville itself is a place with a very rich heritage as the first all-Black incorporated municipality in the history of the United States. And so shedding a light on how powerful Zora's upbringing was in Eatonville, how her family 
Her father was mayor three times, helped write some of the town's laws. We'll talk specifically about how Eatonville shaped Zora's life and her work. And then we'll actually do even a tour of Eatonville. We'll talk about how um, the different landmarks connect to Zora and what they meant for her. And then even we'll talk about um, how Eatonville around the world, when we think about Eatonville around the world, how Zora continued to look for different communities that reflected the heritage, the richness, the original African cultures that she spent her life trying to preserve as an anthropologist. Do you see yourself as, as like, are you continuing her legacy in some way? Like, for example, do you feel like there was more that she had to do ahead of her um, at the end of her career? And, and do you kind of see yourself as continuing that legacy? I think in some ways I have landed on, even in my creative writing, what is it that I do? What's my focus? And it's really about human connection. One of the things that Zora did as an anthropologist and folklorist is she traveled to Jamaica and Haiti to try to find original African practices and cultures and religion. Um, but she originally wanted to go to West Africa, but she was not funded to do that. And so for me specifically, uh, a lot of times I find myself feeling like I'm retracing her steps. In 2019, I went to Ghana and that was one of the places she wanted to go. I feel like I'm going up a level and saying, hey, Zora, you preserved this, but now I want to create bridges throughout the African diaspora. So what does it mean to be Black and then have connection to Jamaican roots, to African roots, to Haitian roots? And so I think it's kind of a continuation and a branch off of what she did. Mm -hmm. Are some of those conversations difficult to have now just because of where we are politically and kind of socially in the United States of America in 2022? I don't had experience where it's difficult I've had experience where it's beautiful because of if you approach it with openness and you say okay well hey these are the things that I do that are similar to yours but I want to hear about your life and so I find even when I went to Ghana it was more so that the conversations had never been had so what is your life like oh you're interested in this for example me being someone of um, African-American heritage in my upbringing and in my schooling, I always learned about slavery from this side of the ocean. <laughs> Being on the other side of the ocean, the amount of information and knowledge they were able to give for our ancestors prior to getting on slave ships. I was like, wow, I never thought of any of this. I never considered what it was like walking miles and hundreds of miles to get to a slave castle being in a slave dungeon and then being shut in it for just a minute, having that experience is nothing that I could have experienced on this side of, an, of the ocean. So I think appreciation, respect, and openness make it all possible. So back to what you're doing, you've written some works that are inspired by Zora Neale Hurston. You're in the process of, of writing a book now. Can you talk a little bit about the book you're writing at the moment? Yeah, it's actually called Dear Zora. So when I started presenting on her, I was very uncertain. I'm not a history buff. I didn't even know, you know, anything about her beyond their eyes watching God. And I wanted to build a connection, a relationship. So kind of my intuition told me, oh, you should write her a letter. <laughs> you should just write her a letter. And so since 2018, since that first presentation, I've been writing Zora letters. And so I decided to publish that to show our relationship but to also add some context and some depth 
to my experience and give people an opportunity to kind of launch their own research. There's lots of annotations to talk about um, and explain what I'm talking about and discussing with Zora. And it's really cool. I decided in true Zora fashion to try a different approach because one of the things that Zora's legacy is affected by is what the publishers would not publish at the time she was writing. And she famously wrote an article called What White Publishers Won't Print. And she talks about this censorship, essentially, in publishing. And so in it, I decided, oh, you know, what could I do to challenge this? What's my activism? And I decided that I was going to publish the work in progress first and then publish the finalized version when it's finalized because so many people don't write their stories because they think I could never write a book because to produce a book takes a lot of people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you think, oh, I'm comparing my rough draft with someone's finalized, brilliant work, polished work. And so I want to show that transparency and hopefully it's a form of inspiration. So Dear Zora will be that first book that I do that for. And if people want to be beta readers and read it ahead of everybody, as it is right now, they can join the Work in Progress Literary Club on Facebook and read it for free, but also have an opportunity to discuss my process, what they think, ask me questions, and really interact with me. So people can find more about the series that you're presenting, The Storyteller and Her Town, on your website, Ray Dot com. I wanted to ask too, Ray, I mean, like, is this your life's work? Do you see yourself as, as staying with Zora Neale Hurston as a source of inspiration for some time? Or do you, do you have other kind of literary endeavors that you want to get off the ground as well? Yeah, so I think storytelling period, I do programs with children. Um, and that is something that Zora absolutely believed in. Uh, she always told stories to children, work with them. Uh, even taught as an English teacher in Fort Pierce as her last job. And so I think in one way or another, even if it's not uh, Zora in the title, (laughs) it will still be connected to Zora in some way. Um, I get asked a lot, would you do other literary figures or other historical figures? And I would not. It is just me and Zora. Anybody that I learn about is to do comparative study and to better understand Zora. Well, Ray Chesney, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you, Matthew. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Production assistance from our intern, Allegra Montesano. Editorial guidance from Latoya Dennis. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.